Hi folks, you know what this is. This is another uh, request of you guys to try and help us keep these mics going. The best way to do that is on patreon.com forward slash tortoise uh, It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee, as I say all the time. And uh, while our podcasts are free, that doesn't mean they don't have value. I'd like to think that maybe there is a value in what we do. Uh, and I know we don't live in that socialist utopia. Bills have to be paid. So how we do that, as I said, is patreon.com forward slash tortoise And for that, you get an abundance of additional content plus the podcast come to you as I quickly as I can turn them around without these inserts or without these pleas for support um, this week alone you've missed out on podcasts with Joe Pina from the Socialist Party in Portugal who took time away from the budgetary process to chat with me I spoke to Nicholas Dale Leal uh, a Colombian journalist about the potential of a left wing victory in the presidential election in Colombia and even if they don't win just have made it as far as they have now uh, it's it's a really really interesting times there uh, there's also Julian Marciniak on the hospitality sector and Raise the Roof came on to tell us about activism and meetings that are taking place across the country all of those are available right now as well as about over 900 additional pieces of content uh, for the price as I said of a fancy cup of coffee once a month that's what we're looking for and it really really is needed to keep this show on the road I won't delay you any further. This is our conversation we had earlier this week with John Gibbons uh, on the Ireland's failure to live up to the climate targets that we've set. And I'm sound disillusioned. It's probably because I am. John puts it pretty starkly. So do have a listen. I think it's really worthwhile. Thanks for the support. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And today on Reboot Republic, we're delighted to have John Gibbons, who listeners will probably be very familiar with, longtime environmentalist and a journalist as well. John, I'm delighted to have you on Reboot Republic. I know you've been on Echo Chamber a number of times, but this is your first entree onto Reboot Republic. Delighted to be here, Rory. Yeah. And John, listen, we're, we're going to chat a little bit today about the EPA report, which came out last week and and the general, I suppose, where we are in terms of, of the climate, Ireland's response um, and I suppose how we deal with really trying to get that transformative change that we know is needed. Um, but, you know, constantly gets lost behind various headlines of things that take over and understandably, but it is a real issue and um, how we keep the climate agenda to the fore. So maybe first, um, John, you could explain a little bit, I suppose, where, in sense, what you think, what did the EPA report tell us about Ireland's current response and how we're responding, how we're changing to um, achieve our, our climate targets, but also to make that transition to the zero carbon economy and society we know we need? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, the, the targets that the government has set us uh, for 2030 is uh, 51% emissions reductions across the board. Now, that won't be achieved evenly. So, for example, uh, the energy sector is expected to achieve closer to 70 to 80% because there's other sectors like agriculture that are going to be more difficult. So, that's the target. That's And we were given, if you like, annual sub-targets to achieve that. So, the EPA have kind of dipped in the middle of this process, well, early in this process to see how we're doing and they've recalculated them. And their current estimate is that in a best case scenario, Rory, everything going well with a fair wind behind us, 
the best we can achieve by 2030 is a 28% cut. So we're basically, we've already given up almost half our targets for wow. 2030. So that's how far 20, behind we are now. 28% versus yeah. 50%. And remember, that includes uh, the energy sector achieving about 80%. So what it tells us basically is that uh, we're, I mean, those targets, those very ambitious targets, in fairness, are more or less dead in the water at this stage. Um, Now, we soon will have what are called sectoral targets. This is where uh, the equivalent of of a government budget, where where every department gets its own sectoral target. Uh, That'll be interesting. There's lots of fighting going on about that and lots of uh, interest groups, obviously, m- making sure that their sector get the lowest possible target. But the the key failing in the sectoral targets that I can see is that while you may have a target like a budget, there's no penalty that I'm aware of if you fail to achieve your sectoral target. So let's say yeah. you're the minister for I don't know, education and your sector's you know is is given a target of forty percent reduction and you miss it. There's no financial penalty. There's no clawback. So in a sense, these these uh, targets become advisory. And if we know anything in politics, it is that anything that is advisory, the civil servants will tell you, and the minister will nod back and they'll say, "Yeah, right. We'll see you. We'll see. We'll see you when we see you." So this is the concern that there's no mechanism to bind in these these uh, sectoral emissions targets that I'm aware of. And if you break it down a little bit, right? Uh, for example, our, our biggest polluting sector is agriculture, and uh, Laura Burke, the EPA. Um, Chief, she made an interesting point because you hear a lot from agriculture about how they're improving efficiency and so on. You know, they're doing things better. And she put it very simply. She said, efficiency, she said, doesn't cut it. So the atmosphere only responds to uh, total emissions and the atmosphere is uninterested in efficiency. So you can be slightly more efficient and double your output. And what you've done is you've doubled your pollution. So in the case of agriculture, the part, of course, that's driving the whole system is the massive ramping up of the dairy sector. Uh, And there's a really simple way to think about uh, dairy pollution or or agriculture pollution uh, generally, but dairy specifically. That is, every litre of milk means more methane. And methane, of course, is this ultra-potent greenhouse gas uh, between 28 and 80 times more potent than the equivalent of CO2. So within Ireland... For a small country, we have a really big problem with these powerful greenhouse gases. And uh, so if you look out to 2030, now, like I mentioned, uh, agriculture is nominally signed up for between 22 and 30% cuts. But according to the EPA's calculations, they reckon that agriculture will, in fact, emissions will have risen by 1.8%. So this is in a sector, sorry, this is in a country where we're all supposed to be achieving a 51% cut. We have the largest sector that the EPA are now saying will continue to increase its emissions all the way to 2030. And I would stress, Rory, that that also includes everything, all their their um, plans being put in place and being fully implemented. And we know full well that in areas like agriculture, it's extremely difficult to get 100,000 farmers to all do the right thing at the right time in the right order yeah. because that's that's how you need it to happen. So yeah. it's very difficult. Yeah, just I also joined uh, by our, our great producer, Tony Groves, as well, who has a question. But I actually have one first quick one, Tony, just to respond directly to the agriculture question because there are issues around, um, I think there's a couple of things. One is the question of the rural economy and the viability of that and how that is supported. The second one is in terms of our the question now that's coming up is our food sovereignty and how does our does this tie in with that and how could you know we address that 
And thirdly is the question, has there been anything done on the inequality of uh, or the the production of, of um, greenhouse gases within the agricultural system itself? You mentioned dairy. We know that dairy is, is a highly, um, you know, it's becoming an increasingly concentrated system amongst a small number of farmers who make a lot of money. And when people think of agriculture, think of lots of small farmers making a little bit from the land. But Irish agriculture has changed. And I just wonder if there was any figures around that about small number of producers producing a lot of the greenhouse gases, for example. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, if you take, say, in total, there's maybe 150,000 people described as farmers in Ireland. Now, many of them are part time. Yeah. Uh, within the subset of that would be we've got about 16,000 dairy farmers, right? And then you've got uh, a number of uh, beef farmers. Now, the Far and away, the biggest contributor to greenhouse gases from this whole sector are beef and dairy. Now, they're quite different because the last time I checked, your average Irish beef farmer receives 158% of his uh, income in the form of subsidies. 158%. So the actual business side is it's almost irrelevant. Yeah. Mostly, mostly they're, they're harvesting subsidies, right? That's on the one side. And Okay, you you can make an argument for and against that, but that's the that's the reality. On the other hand, uh, dairy, as you've correctly said, has become highly concentrated. So you've got a smaller number of operators getting bigger and bigger. So the the, the more successful dairy farmers, what they're doing basically is they're leasing and buying land all around them. Yeah. And what and one of the ways we've seen this is we've had a slump in the amount of uh, acreage in Ireland under tillage in the last number of years, and this is disastrous, by the way, because. Uh, as your area under tillage shrinks, then your ability to feed your population declines. This is yeah. really simple stuff. Yeah. Now, we're currently in a situation I was shocked to hear that we're actually importing flour into this country. We're not only importing flour, we import potatoes. Our number one potato producer, and this, talk about um, all your history books turning on their heads. Yeah. We import, I think it's 50,000 tons of potatoes a year from Britain. Right. You know, the island with 65 million people on it with hardly enough room to swing a cat. Well, they've got enough room to grow potatoes to sell to Ireland because Ireland agriculturally is is kind of empty. Right. We yeah. don't produce. We produce almost no. We've less than one percent of our agricultural land is horticulture. Less than one percent. Less than two percent of our land is organic. So that the systems that are nature friendly, which is your organic agriculture, is almost non-existent in Ireland. And the, and the type of agriculture that feeds huge numbers of people, as in horticulture, this is producing food to shove into humans. What we're great at is producing grass to shovel into animals to eventually work their way into the human food chain. Mm -hmm. But in so doing, you are basically introducing this, rooting your food through the, the digestive system of ruminants is energy intensive. And also, it's import dependent. So we currently import about 400,000 tons of chemical nitrogen. Much of that, by the way, used to come from Russia. And as you know, the prices have shot up as a result. Yeah, so we're yeah. importing 400,000 tons of chemical nitrogen, overwhelming our landscape with nitrogen to try to force more and more grass out of the ground. Uh, so the importing of chemical nitrogen makes us very, very vulnerable to external shocks and diminishes our food security, number one. And number two... We're also importing, depending on the year, between three and five million tons of animal feed. And much of this is in the form of soya and maize, often imported from South and Central America, because to supplement our animal feeds. So 
what you have is a situation here where an island with a low population is not we we we're not food independent on this little island. Now you probably Which look is a little incredible shocked. given our history, as you say, incredible. It's not only incredible, but it's also incredible given our PR. I mean, every time I, I turn on the radio and hear a politician talking about uh, Irish agriculture, they will tell you that we're feeding 40 million people. Now, okay. it's an interesting stat, and I've tried to dig into it. I think what they mean is somewhere in the world, in a given year, 40 million people have, have eaten something that was produced in Ireland, right? So let's say, I don't know. Let's say 40 million people each had a beef burger or each had a pint of milk or each bought a bar of Kerrygold. We're statistically saying that we've fed that person. Now, it's it's just a word game. Of course, we haven't fed them. We haven't provided them with their nutritional requirements for the year. What they're doing is a very clever exercise in pretending that we're feeding uh, tens of millions of people and then pretending that Ireland has some role in global food security and that we're a net provider. And then you hear you hear the, the, the lobbyists say, oh, but we have a duty to feed the world. Now, I'm sorry, their duty is to make money. Uh, and the notion that they're involved in some world feeding thing, uh, it's not borne out by the statistics. For example, Ireland, uh, we're, we're, we, we're selling dairy or dumping, if you prefer, dairy into West Africa. Right, and what that's doing is uh, undermining your local pastoral farmers, pushing them out of business. Some of them are ending up uh, as as jihadis as a result, uh, because that's what they produce is small amounts of milk that yeah. they sell at a good price in the local markets. In comes the European and the Irish milk, floods in, nice and subsidised, nice and cheap, puts the local farmers out of business. Now that's not that's not a, an ideal model, but that's how it works. Uh, so unfortunately, um, and I guess particularly given the year that we're in it with the, the, the war in Europe and the general political instability, an ambition of mine so far unfulfilled is that I live in a country, an island that has achieved food sovereignty and food security. In other words, our ability to feed ourselves uh, fully on our own resources. And I often use this analogy. Let's imagine that something happened that cut Ireland off from the rest of the world. What would happen in the, in the six to 12 months after that? At the moment, what would happen is we would starve. I think that's a terrible food policy. To my mind, the first duty of, of an agricultural system is to provide the ability to feed your population. Yeah. That got forgotten yeah. about. So, sorry, and by the way, so, John, can I come in? It was said in 2011 that 40 million figure was put out by then Minister for Agriculture, Simon Coveney, that we could feed 40 million people with the ambition to feed 60 by 2020 at the time. If that, sure. yeah, no, but, but, oh. but, but it's important to put this in context because, you know, when we talk, like I've spoken to Sinead Moles on, on, on this, on the podcast before, and she did the report for Oxfam about sustainable and fair global food systems. And one of the things that we've seen that's actually happened now, it's, it's that worst thing. It's the breakdown in supply chains. So, mm-hmm. you know, we are now facing all of these shortages to feed, uh, to feed the, the cattle to feed the things to produce the, the food that we need to do. And if we're feeling the pinch in Ireland, people are going hungry already in places oh, in yeah. Africa. And, and people are going like it's now estimated that over 50 percent of the population in Afghanistan are food insecure. The last time I spoke to someone in Afghanistan, that figure was a quarter, uh, you know, 25 percent. Now it's doubled and they are going they are literally don't know, don't know where their next meal is coming from. Uh, but I, I want to bring it all the way back, if you don't mind, to the program for government, because you showed it at the outset of this podcast how it's failing. We're, we're, we're Even if we reach the targets, it's it's 28% versus 51% reduction done. 
people like yourself, Professor John Sweeney, um, even Aidan Regan in, in, in one of his early, early pieces in the Business Post warned that a government that was that was setting its sights on deficit reduction, which it did and was and used, I'm going to say, wishy washy terms in terms of climate achievement. You know, there was a lot of we aspire to, we hope to, we aim to. It was always going to be the most difficult task to, to actually achieve that, John. And I, and I put it to you that it was doomed from the outset. I, I, I think I think maybe that's unfair of me, but I do feel, you know, it, they, they, it was set up to fail. Yeah, I mean, that's a view, Tony. Um... I suppose, the, obviously, the current government has a green component, and and the reason I've mentioned that specifically is that you know in the inter in the ten years before uh, the current government, uh, we had there was no green input, and essentially the the green agenda completely died on on the vine, totally and utterly. It was thrown overboard. Now, uh, and that was kind of a lost decade in climate action. So I'm kind of a little torn here because there's no doubt about it that the 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 fact that what has happened in terms of climate legislation, setting these ambitious targets, the only reason any of these things happened is because of the presence of the Greens within government. I can promise you this has not been pushed by Leo Varadkar. If you remember, Leo told us a couple of years back that uh, we would have fewer deaths from cold as yeah. the world warmed he, up. He, he actually okay? said Ireland, Ireland might be a winner in climate in climate yeah. action and climate yeah, change. Yeah, there is, there is an unfortunate misunderstanding on the part of some people, including high up in politics uh, and people who should know better that maybe, maybe we can be, as you say, we can be climate winners. Now, unfortunately, uh, to use our our uh, most hackneyed of of, techno- of, of uh, cliches, uh, you know, being at the back of the Titanic. Uh, is no advantage. Uh, it really isn't. And as the as the ship goes down at the moment, the global south is dipping under the water, and we're and we're we're the end of the boat that's sticking up in the air. And we're and we're thinking, God, we've never been we've never been further out of the water. This is great. Uh, so no, there is no advantage. And 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 with climate, there is no winners. In fact, I was uh, just before I came on uh, this morning, I was uh, looking at a couple of interesting threads about climate and. Um, it has been projected by the World Meteorological Organization that, that in the next five years, one of the years in the next five may breach global 1.5 degrees, right? Now, this is crazy stuff. This wasn't supposed to happen until the midnight, mid-2030s, okay? Now, um, I mean, the climate system is full of so many booby prizes like you wouldn't believe. Uh, to give you another one, there's something called a blue ocean event, uh, which I hope not to be around to see, but I almost certainly will. A blue ocean event is the year, the summer, when all the sea ice in the uh, Arctic disappears in high summer. All of it. Okay. Well, almost all of it. Just a few little lumps left floating around. And we're very close to a blue ocean event. Uh, A blue ocean event will tip us forward 25 years into the future. So take 2022, that becomes close to 2050. Okay. And we're really close to a blue ocean event. Okay. Uh, As we... So... The whole system is full of booby prizes. Uh, every single one of them is a lemon. There's no good booby prizes in the climate system. And I suppose, you know, while we can kind of make it a political issue about these guys are doing this and these guys are doing that and we should do more, the reality is we're all in the one boat together and the boat is going down. Uh, I, I used but, to say the boat is going down slowly. Now I'm not so sure. But but isn't isn't part of the problem that while we are all in this together, that you've the likes of Elon Musk and others talking about building spaceships in around the earth, that there is an idea, not just an idea, but a belief amongst 
the 1% that they will have an escape hatch no matter what happens. And therefore, you know, there's a certain amount of, there's no real, you know, impetus on the system, the economic global system to change dramatically. I think you're right. And, and yesterday, actually, Musk tweeted out that that part of his space travel was to build, and I quote, a backup to the biosphere. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> As if he can stick it on a thumb drive. And yeah. I suppose this is, to me, uh, when I when I read stuff like that, uh, it's it has a sort of an end times feel to it. Mm. It's where basically we've given up, really, yeah. and we're, we've thrown our lot in with a few lunatics, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, Musk is, is, and history will show, is just a another uh, very, very wealthy lunatic. Um, and unfortunately, this is the situation. And you're right, Rory, like this weird idea that, you know, like I don't know if you've seen the movie Don't Look Up, where the rich people get onto yeah. a, a jet and jet out into space. Yeah. Uh, now, that, I hope I haven't given away the ending for anybody, but there is this weird idea. And you see it, for example, in, in remote parts of uh, New Zealand, where billionaires are building effectively compounds and bunkers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They know exactly what's going on. They expect the system to fail and they reckon that they will simply find a heavily armed, extremely remote corner of the world that they're going to bug out to when it happens. Now, you know, well, first of all, can I just come in on that? Because people think that sounds insane. But New Zealand has actually have to step in. The government has had to step in and say, you can't keep buying these huge ranches. You yeah, can't keep buying. Right. You can't keep buying these huge ranches. We have to limit the amount of them. And to, uh, I, uh, I recall a couple of years ago, we spoke to and uh, forgive me. Oh, Maria Farrell, who she she's 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 a futurist. She writes for many of the magazines about this, and she was hosting a thing with the likes of Steve Jobs and these people. You know, she was one of the hosts, and they were given given talks. And they went backstage, and the lads were all discussing where they were where they were going to purchase their uh, their ranches. While meanwhile, yeah. going on stage and telling people that technology was going to save the globe. Uh, so you know the the, the cognitive and, dissonance isn't even. Go on, yeah, Rory, no, no, no. But it it shows it's part of the problem that if these billionaires are essentially ruling the world, and you know the World Economic Forum, we saw it with governments. The governments; these are the ones that government listen to. We have a real problem. Oh yeah, we have a we we really do, and something actually I, I wrote about recently, which I think I'd, I'd like to kind of read into the record because it's so it's so crazy, and it, and what I'm astonished about is is how few people have kind of just grasped this, right? And the the kind of father of climate economics, or the grandfather, if you like, is a guy called Professor William Nordhaus, Yale University. He's basically he's the eminence grease of climate yeah. economics. He's the guy who who sort of edicts inform even the IPCC, their economic section, their, their, the, the part of the report that deals with the economic impacts of climate change. Now, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2018 uh, for his work in climate economics. Now, his speech for that prize is really worth listening to, because during the speech, he says, and I almost quote, he said that having done the numbers on it, they've calculated, when you look at the costs of climate action, and the costs of climate change. He said that the, the equilibrium, the ideal, the, the, the sweet spot between the costs of acting on climate and the costs of climate is occurs at four degrees centigrade. Okay? Four yeah. degrees centigrade. Now, every climatologist in the world knows that four degrees centigrade 
means billions die. It means the global economy collapses. It means mass death migration. And basically, four degrees centigrade is the prelude to a mass die-off event. It's as simple as that. And for those listeners who wonder why four degrees is such a dramatic change, let me give you an analogy that makes it easier to understand. Okay, your body's core temperature, there's three of us on the call here in three different locations. But if you stuck a thermometer into each of us right now, our core temperature is 37 degrees, give or take. Yeah. It's incredibly stable. Even if we were, even if you moved out into the sun or if you were in a cold place, your core temperature is 37. Now, Earth's core temperature, not the temperature of the core of the Earth, by the way, Earth's, if you like, stable temperature, um, has been in the same range for the last 10,000 years. It hasn't moved one or, more than one degree above or below its temperature median, if you like, in 10,000 years since the end of the last ice age. It's, and everything we've done, all our agriculture, everything has happened in that, in that range. Now, if you, if you ran a temperature, say, up to 38, 39, okay, you'd be pretty sick. If you got to 40 and you didn't get it down very soon, you'd die. It's as yeah. simple as that. Now, yeah. Earth's core temperature... If you move from a base at the moment of about 15 degrees, we've already added about 1.1, 1.2. And as I mentioned, we're heading for 1.5. So that's an even bigger shift, by the way, from a baseline of 15, if you think about it, than the 37 to 38. But anyway, to move from, say, an average surface temperature of 15 up to, say, 18 and 19, that basically turns the world upside down. And it moves us into, it moves us into an era that no human has ever existed in. Okay? And the thing is, we already have put enough CO2 in the global atmosphere. There hasn't been this much CO2 in the global atmosphere in minimum 4 million years. Okay, So we have already recreated the climatic conditions that last existed in an, area, in an era called the Pliocene, which is about 3 or 4 million years ago. And uh, at that time, by the way, this amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is currently at about 420, 422 parts per million, begat an additional 20 meters of sea level rise versus where we are today. Now, you might say, well, John, where is all the sea level rise? How come you guys aren't underwater? The Earth system is both sensitive, but it also has vast inertia because it's so big. And it takes time for the effects to ripple through. Yeah, so stuff yeah. that you did in 1950 kicks you in the ass in, in 2000. Stuff yeah. you did in 1990 kicks you in the ass in 2020. Yeah. So we're, we've loaded all this vast energy into the global climate system and it's beginning to express itself and, more, and, more. And the point you're making there about the four degrees and, and the economics mm. yeah. is that basic letting the economic system, letting the market just operate, mm. it will only adjust and say, well, actually, we should invest in climate change when we've reached this four degrees. So yeah. the point being, the current economic model will not provide the solution, the investment, the change we need. But worse than that, Rory, the, we're, the people who governments listen to, they don't really have climatologists in to their meetings or physicists. They listen to economists. And economists listen to people like William Nordhaus. And what Nordhaus does is he, he confuses weather with climate. And he will say, well, okay, uh, the difference between Florida and North Dakota is about four degrees. Now, the difference in productivity between Florida and North Dakota is about, you know, 4.3%. 
Ergo, yeah. a four degree difference means four 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 percent productivity. And you go, but man, that's crazy. <laughs> that is just it's insane. Crazy. And I, I've got to be honest with you. When I first kind of stumbled, is this a Nobel this, Prize winning economist? He's the Nobel Prize, uh, uh, and this is the this is the big cheese. This is the guy, for example, who poured scorn on the limits to growth document all the way back in 1972-73. He's the guy who governments call up when they want to find out how things are, how well things are going, and how there's nothing to worry about for the future. So he is your Panglossian professor par excellence, and of course he's surrounded by a phalanx of similar professors. We have another one. We used to he, guy used to work here in Ireland, actually in the ESRI. Uh, a guy called Richard Tall. Uh, he's another Panglossian, uh, yeah. and he for, he did recently did a calculation that if we had a shutdown of the AMOC, okay, which is the North Atlantic Conveyor, uh, those movie buffs among you will know it from the day after tomorrow. This is where the entire northern hemisphere freezes over. Well, according to Richard, uh, the climate guy, sorry, the climate economist guy, this would. Uh, cancel out global warming and lead to an, a net economic benefit. Okay, so the guys, all of these people are out of their tree. I can only assume that they've got a a seat on Elon Musk's uh, yes. jet. Yeah, but yeah. but quite I'm honestly, applying for it anyway. But we have left. Though it's a, just a point to finish. We have left the understanding of climate impacts with the very people who are least qualified to understand climate impacts. Climate economists have qualifications in economics and nothing in climate. And, and, it's, and you might say, well, surely they can listen to the experts and they could be advised by the physical scientists. The answer is no. They're, they're a cult. But obviously, they, we've they're seen, also the same in housing, Rory, as well. I know, the way. that's what I was going to say. Um, they also have a, a serious blind spot, which is this notion that demand and supply and the market, and but the problem with it is fundamentally, demand is only exists if you have money. They don't deal with human need. And mm -hmm. so, therefore, they could do economic models that result in, as you say, essentially the obliteration of entire countries and societies and peoples. But that's not included as an economic cost. Because and, and part, yeah, and, and connected to that, of course, is the wonderful word called externalities. Mm. Uh, you and I call the biosphere. Yeah. They call it an externality. So basically everything... And that some people happen, too. Yeah. Oh, there's lots of people who would be included as externalities. But the biosphere is the gigantic externality that helps yeah. to, to balance up the otherwise insane spreadsheets that these guys are working. Essentially, we can rip resources out of the earth indefinitely turn them into stuff, spit them out the other end in the form of waste. You can do this linear economy and the destruction of the biosphere, the accumulation of pollution will never catch up with you. Now, this is the, I suppose, the magic of, of, of economics is this notion that you can run the system uh, using modeling that somehow or other doesn't look or, or chooses to, to grossly downplay all the negative feedbacks, or I could call them positive feedbacks to use a scientific term, that will eventually cause that system to fail. In the same way, if, you, if you're sitting in your garage running your car, right, eventually you'd want to open the window, unless it's an electric car, in which case you can sit in your garage as long as you like. But if you're sitting in your garage running your car, eventually the accumulation of toxic gases will overwhelm you. And this is we're we're on the kind of global version of sitting in our garage running our car, okay, while filling the garage up with plastic as well. By the way, so yeah, yeah. Um, none of these things are properly costed. Can no, I can I ask one yeah, thing, John? Because I know, conscious of time as well, that there's 
there is a we've spoken John before about this that the um the economist side, the maybe we want to I refer to it as maybe the neoliberal capitalist side, they're better at the at the setting the agenda and and controlling the narrative. And we see this now more recently, whereby, you know, the Tanish has had a meeting with the, the people who want to want to fit out the LNG plant. And and you know, we see that that it seems to be, John, that we're changing the language around that as a transition fuel. All of these things are all they're they're managing the narrative. If we're if you're in the EPA, if you're in the Greens, if you're what are we screaming at them that 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 we can't do this or and how do we and how do we change that narrative? Yeah, um, the short answer, Tony, is with with, with great difficulty uh, because you know to to basically to get out of this corner that we've painted ourselves into globally and nationally, you know every sector, every country, every block has to set aside all their decades and centuries of differences. And we've all got to act together collectively in a way that human beings have never done before. And we've got to act altruistically and we've got to accept drastic limits on our actions. Like, I mean, drastic limits, okay? To, to make, what do I mean by that? You know, we've got to reduce uh, international aviation by at least 90%, at least, okay? Similar with shipping, we've got to, reduce our demand for fossil fuels uh, absolutely drastically because we can't build out renewables, by the way, fast enough to simply replace all the fossil fuel we're using. We can't replace it with an equal amount of renewables. So we're heading into a bottleneck, okay, a resource and a climate bottleneck where we have to figure out how to make do with drastically less than we have managed on so far. Now, as you, you'll notice that I've committed a number of heresies there. Okay, yep. I've, I've talked about degrowth, which of course you can't talk about, and I've talked about austerity, which of course you can't talk about, and I've talked about the notion that we have to check our collective privilege, at least those of us lucky enough to live in this part of the world. And if you say any of these things out loud, you will be attacked for it because uh, you're being unreasonable, and people have suffered enough, etc., etc., etc. Of course, there are people in in other parts of the world who most of us know nothing about who their Best day is worse than our worst day. This is remains situation. The global inequality is absolutely staggering. And our sense of how the world should continue for our benefit has been, if you like, it hasn't in any way been impacted by the climate emergency. So all the things that folks from the climate uh, community uh, are saying is that we have to batten down the hatches, we have to reduce, we have to contract, we have to withdraw from nature, we're going to have to, for example, I, I talked about the 90% reduction in, in flying, we're going to have to have practical elimination of meat from the global diet. I'm talking about 90% of meat has to disappear from the global diet so that we can give back uh, huge tracts of the world uh, back to nature to allow rewilding. Now, if all of this, by the way, sounds like a fantasy, Right. And you can, you guys are looking at me, I think, saying, uh, that's not going to happen. Okay. Okay. Let's say it isn't going to happen. Well, that's fine. Then we steam on for 1.5, 2, 3, 4 degrees centigrade and the end. Okay. Now that's the choice. And at the moment, by the way, that's the way we're going. And I, th- no, I, think, yeah, I think, John, no, I think it is important to paint and to say that. And I would completely support you know, the concept of degrowth. And I come at it from a, from a different angle in the sense of, I think that we have to figure out ways, and, and in particular the area of housing, I think of it as an example, that there is ways in which we can do this transition that actually achieves more equal societies. That I think 
we do have huge inequalities within these countries, within our own countries as well. And so for some people to say, you know, we have to make these cuts, some people can't even cut, you know, themselves in terms of if they're homeless, if they're, you know, living in, you know, poverty here as well, that there's a massive redistribution within our existing resources needed so that we achieve a fair transition and that you can have an overall significant you know, all the reductions we need while actually improving some people's quality of life. And I think housing is a really good example where we could achieve that if we actually put the proper investment into retrofitting people's homes in social housing, in rental housing, and said, there's no cost. The state is doing this because this is what we need. But that would require challenging all sorts of interests as well. That it does require challenging our inequalities that could actually bring people along with us. I think I, I'm 100% with you, Rory, because, I mean, the, the thing, the, the most insidious trend of the last 20 or 30 years has been the rise of the oligarchs. And I don't just mean Russians, by the way. I mean yeah. the, the, the plutocrats all over the world. And their capture of politics has led us basically to the, the destruction of democracy. And you take, you know, I know we're not going to go into it in that great detail, but you, you watch the uh, the American unraveling, and that is essentially the, the end of the New Deal and the, the dismantling of all the, the progress in a, in a very flawed country, don't get me wrong, but where the, the, there had been a, a contract, if you like, between the rich and, and, and the rest which said we will share stuff out in the common interest. Yeah. And that contract collapsed from, as we know, from about 1980 onwards. Sorry, that contract was destroyed. Exactly. Right? It, yeah. it didn't die of, of, of natural causes. It was no. killed. The contract has been destroyed. And essentially, the plutocrats are back to a new Gilded Age, as bad as anything we saw in the, in the late 19th century. And what a catastrophic time to be yeah. putting yeah. To, sorry, we didn't put them to to allow or to have allowed uh, billionaires to take over. And I take your point entirely, Rory. I mean, the, the there is a famous cartoon right at one of these climate conferences, and, and the person on the board is saying, you know, um, clean water, um, healthier air, and and uh, you know, better nature, and so on, a whole bunch of benefits, right? And the crank at the back of the hall says, yeah, but what if it's a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Right. It's yeah. a great line. Yeah. The point is, every step that we take towards climate stabilization and every step that we take towards nature restoration makes us makes it a better, cleaner, safer world. But the problem is that doesn't work for the hyper rich because they exactly. don't want a better, cleaner, safer world. They want they want 99 percent of people living in the toilet so that they can sit on a golden throne. And it's, I'm sorry, like um, I say this as somebody who, who is a, a small term capitalist, right? I'm yeah. not somebody who lives in a tree. I say this not out of some class envy, but I say it out of enlightened self-interest. We cannot allow the billionaire classes to destroy the world because they will kill us all. And I say that, I do not say that lightly. This crew will kill us all. Well, listen, John, I think that is a, a, a really important point to end. And, and I think that there are a lot, lot of people, the majority of people across the world who agree with that. The problem is the challenge is how do we turn that into the change? And that's the, the challenge we have and we will continue to work on. John Gibbons, absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Reboot Pleasure, Republic. Rory. And Tony, pleasure.
And that was John there. And um, listen, you can listen back to our podcast um, on Reboot Republic. We've had uh, lots of issues recently covering housing um, inequality. And um, also, please, if you can, become a patron of Reboot Republic. We are completely independent. Go over to um, patreon.com forward slash tortoise track. Sign up for whatever you can each month. And also, please share the podcast around. Let people know you're listening to them. In particularly something like that there from John, I think is really powerful. The more people we have that can listen to this, that can um, hear the ideas, spread the word, the more we can get this change. Um, this is not just a podcast. It's a tool for change. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all soon.